Blackwells were honoured to be joined by Chelsea Kawachi, who was in conversation with Daisy J. Hung on our hugely important book, Taking Up Space, The Black Girl's Manifesto for Change, from Murky Books. This book features honest conversations with students, past and present. Taking Up Space goes beyond the buzzwords of diversity and inclusion and explores what those words truly mean for young black girls today. Murky Books was set up by publishers Penguin Random House and Stormzy in June 2018 to find and publish the best writers of a new generation and to publish the stories that are not being heard. Hashtag Murky Books aims to open up the world of publishing and this year has launched a new writer's prize and will soon be launching a Hashtag Murky Books traineeship. And thank you all for coming. I'm very excited to be here. Really happy to talk to Chelsea about her new book that she's co-written with Ore Ugumbi. Um, and so they have in their book talked about their experiences as black women doing undergraduate degrees at the University of Cambridge. And throughout their book, they share others, other people, other black women and non-binary people's experiences as well within higher education. Um, and so I just want to share that I'm very personally and professionally passionate about diversity issues. Um, I did an ethnic studies degree in California um, and then went on to do a law degree as well. Um, and I'm, you know, really happy to be here to talk to you and find out more about your experiences and celebrate the last day of Black History Month. But certainly these sorts of conversations should continue to happen even beyond October. Um, so what we're going to do today is uh, Chelsea's going to give a reading of her book. We're going to have a conversation and then we'll open it up for questions. Um, and there are copies many copies of her book available um, for purchase, and you can stick around and sign them, is that yeah. right? Yeah, okay, perfect. So if we want to just go to your reading. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so I wanted to read from this particular section because I'm, I'm guessing if a lot of people have recently seen in the news, a lot of stuff has been happening, especially in terms of Oxbridge admissions and the ways in which universities respond to that. So this is from the first chapter um, that I wrote, which is on a access and kind of getting into university. So, get into it. Every so often, a headline about the underrepresentation of black students in elite academic institutions rears its ugly head in national news. Around every six months, it seems as though every major newspaper has an alarm set. During my time at Cambridge, those moments were the worst. Journalists flooded your inboxes on every social media site. All of the black students became hyper-visible and all of the white students were reminded to pity you and exclaim, oh, I didn't realise that you were the only one, despite the fact that you had to face that fact every single day. Or my personal favourite, being constantly asked, are you sure the lack of diversity at Oxbridge is not because black students aren't applying? Probably, but have you ever thought to question why they're not applying? The journalists who write these stories continue to have no regard for the black students who are actually in these institutions. These very stories also have an effect on our experiences at university. It's exhausting. As it stands, the decentralised administration system at Oxbridge falters when it comes to access and outreach. It turns into a game of who can get more black students into their universities so that they can avoid the tabloids. Despite a genuine commitment from some school liaisons officers and access staff, this rat race actually overlooks inclusion issues, such as how well can black students feel on university grounds once they arrive. Universities view themselves as liberal and progressive places that are at the forefront of society. Formal education is still believed to be a sure means of gaining that social mobility passport. 
Clinging on to this vision of what our educational system could be, universities are prone to ignoring the fact that racism can still be at the core of the same institution that is offering platforms to discuss and learn about it. The challenges universities now face is, an, is addressing an access problem under constant scrutiny. Here lurks the word diversity, which has become a catch-all cliche, one that points to inclusivity and representation without ever taking in what it really means. Let's take the strategic objectives from the University of York's Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Strategy from 2017 to 2022. Objective one, embed equality into all aspects of university life. Objective two, attract, attain and succeed. Objective three, be flexible and adaptive to the needs of our diverse university community. And objective four, adopt an inclusive campus approach. I searched and searched. I wanted to make sure that the above hadn't really been published as an equality, diversity and inclusion scheme that was supposed to span five years. There is no strategy within the report, no mention of how the university would monitor and address differences in degree outcomes or how the university would be committed to promoting a culture based on the principles of respect, dignity and inclusion. If you think I'm being harsh, you can have a look at SOAS, so university, their, their University of London's Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Strategy from 2016 to 2020. Its report not only includes detailed and specific strategic objectives for 2016 to 2020, but individual stories of students who are most affected by diversity and inclusion policies. Most importantly, the ways in which progress will be measured and maintained. Point 10, for example, ensuring progress, demonstrates the sophistication of acknowledging that as staff and students, we all serve different roles and responsibilities when it comes to these issues. Rather than suggesting a widespread commitment to equality, there is an understanding that diversity and inclusion managers have a fundamentally different role from the Board of Trustees, for example. By pinpointing specific groups, this at least ensures a standardised and coherent commitment to strategic objectives. It seems as if most universities are stringing sentences together in an, in an attempt to prove that they are doing something, anything. We're left with vague strategic papers that lack critique, discussion and direction. And sadly, it's the students who fall under this diverse umbrella who suffer when universities send a clear message that equality is an afterthought. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that reading. And obviously in the book, you talk mm. a lot about access um, and how some universities might be doing it better than others in terms of at least what you're talking about, the detail in their plans and their strategic objectives. Can you talk a bit about um, your experience in the University of Cambridge? Yeah, sure. Um, oh, where to start? <laughs> <laughs> so many um, things, yes. So I'll probably start from the beginning. I guess that makes more sense. So I went to state school um, in East London in Chinkford and yeah I think my school experience was quite interesting it wasn't I can't sit down and pinpoint it and say you know at this particular moment a teacher told me that I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that um, but I think more so when I was applying to Oxbridge um, that was when I did when a lot of the assumptions started to creep in I think not just from other people but also from myself as well I think it was a massive question of Am I even able to do this? I don't know anyone who has even 
you know, stepped a foot in Cambridge or has been in that environment, how do I even begin to navigate that? So I think a lot of the anxieties and assumptions from that process, I definitely took into the university environment with me. So I think everybody has it when you first get there, that sense of imposter syndrome and, you know, you're new, you've just come from home, from your friends and your family where you're familiar and you have this assumption that, oh, everybody's obviously smarter than me, they've made a massive mistake, why am I here? Um, but I think as I went through, you know, the university process and my whole three years, I started to understand how a lot of those feelings were also mediated by my race and my gender. Mm -hmm. And I think, I especially spent my third year just kind of learning a lot more about that and, and trying to pinpoint historically, but also the environment that I was in, why did I actually feel like that? And I think through writing, taking up space, I realised I wasn't the only one. Of course, Aura was there. And yeah, there are um, people who also contributed to the book, their experiences as well, even though they didn't go to the same university, which just made me realise that of course this is an issue that needs to be spoken about we're not the first and we definitely won't be the last I mean imposter syndrome comes up quite a bit in yeah. your book from you and Ori and like you said with other people's experiences how were you able to manage that through your time at Cambridge mm. and even now perhaps I think it was tough um but in terms of being able to manage it mm. I think for so long I I understood imposter syndrome as being it's all about you you lack the confidence and you feel like an imposter when actually when you go to an environment and you know we'll use the example of being a black woman in Cambridge or being a black woman in Oxford there are literal things around you telling you you are an imposter mm -hmm. so sometimes it does extend it's not just about you and I think mm -hmm. moving away from the understanding that I feel like an imposter because I'm not confident and I don't feel like I can do this when actually if people around me were telling me that I couldn't do it and you know, you go into the halls and what is deemed as excellence and the, you know, cherry on top is somebody who doesn't look like you or their achievements that are so far away from your world. They're literal examples of being an imposter, right? So I think it was definitely understanding that whereas some of it might originate for myself, how the environment is also contributing to that as yeah. well. So definitely this... Um issue with feeling belonging mm. in this institution, primarily white institution. And I, I found, I read one part of your book where you feel like you didn't even get a sense of control of your own identity because mm. other people are able to go into university, find themselves, you know, explore who they want to be. But you didn't really feel that way, is that right? Yeah, I think I saw going to university as such an exciting time because I thought, right, I'm gonna do everything. Like, I love sport. You know, I was obviously, I, I did a history degree, I love reading, I love history. Um, and I don't know, it was interesting because, and I had this conversation with my sister before I went to Cambridge and she was like, are you going to join your African Caribbean society? And at the time I didn't really know much about ACS and I was like, oh, probably not. I want you need to be a time where I go. Like there'll be so many people from all different areas um, around the world. I don't know if I'll ever get this opportunity again. Maybe I'll join the ACS later, but like, I want to go out and branch a bit more. Um, what, like within my first week, for example. But then I got there and I literally did not have a choice. <laughs> in terms of being in an environment where, you know, I don't, 
this term might sound very extreme, but in terms of like actually surviving the environment and feeling comfortable and having, because there are, there are times where you don't get many people to talk to, for example. So even finding friends who you know are going through the same experience and are understanding what it's like to be the only black person, not just in your year group, but in the whole college. What does that, what does that feel like? And I think immediately you do tend to bond with other people who are going through that experience naturally mm -hmm. so yeah I think for me that whole sense of belonging I was able to find that luckily through a lot of active groups at Cambridge so we have of course Cambridge ACS um, our Kusi BME campaign um, and we also have another group called Fly as well mm -hmm. which is for women and non-binary people of colour um, and yeah, just through that, I was able to learn so much and understanding that belonging is also about finding people you can relate to and just talking to people. And that is, that is you know, more than the formal understanding of how we see a university. It is the people who make up that institution. And so going back to your, your, your book in the first chapter, you're talking mm. about um, how you had a really terrible open day experience in Cambridge but then you ended up kind of then going to apply and then attending mm. Cambridge so yeah. what kind of um led to those decisions after that terrible experience yeah um so for those who haven't read the book I went to an open day at a college called Corpus Christi and it's oh <laughs> <laughs> and um it's it's like the one of the tiniest colleges and everything's very quaint and cobbled and, you know, really nice. So I went there and I had on this, like, really bright Aztec blazer. And I was walking and I was like, yeah, you know, <laughs> it'll be fine. Like, it's Cambridge or whatever. And, um, yeah, when I went, I don't know, it was, I think it was kind of, again, like I said, walking and feeling like, whoa, actually, maybe this is something that I've read about and I've done my research on, but I'm now... I'm like in this space and I think I was just very 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 overwhelmed um, but then also looking around I realized not just in terms of the university but also the city as well in Cambridge like being one of the only black families kind of walking around that mm. was a I think quite a stark reality as well I've lived in London my whole life and I haven't been anywhere else mm. so it was realizing that um, and yeah so when I was in that environment I, I made a promise to myself that I was never going to apply to Cambridge again. I just didn't... That feeling, I never wanted to have that feeling. Um, but it was after, and in, in that kind of transition period, it was after that experience I thought... I had a lot of time to think, would I be doing myself a disservice if, you know, I've had that one experience, I didn't enjoy it, but there is still, a, you know, a chance that I could go to this university and have a good time if that was always in the back of my mind that if what if I did get in and you know if I did have a good experience and if I did academically I was able to push myself to new levels do I really want to miss out on that and I think during that transition period I that's what I thought about and for me that was the most important thing I mean I was going to university at the time Cambridge was the best for history mm -hmm. I thought if I have an opportunity to do it I might as well, and I, I'm going to go. I mean, three years, I think I can do it, and yeah, I did it. <laughs> you did. You did a lot during that time, and you wrote this book as well. Yeah, so amazing. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I mean, with all of these 
a lot of these issues uh, that you raise. Did you? Can you share some positive experiences mm. that you might have had um, through your time there? Yeah, I, just, I think in my third year, I had the best year. So any university students, I know people often say your third year is the worst year. I'm an exception. I had I had a really good third year, and I think that was primarily because. Um, I found the history curriculum in my first year and my second year to be quite restrictive in terms of just what we were studying and how we were studying it. But by the time we got to our final year, it was a lot more, probably use the word experimental, I think. You could, you could look at different areas and there was always someone there to support you. And I had a really great professor um, who was just brilliant. And I think for him he almost reminded me why I applied to study history in the first place. And throughout, that really characterised my third year. And I thought, because I'm enjoying my subject so much, I felt like I had the energy and the time to go and explore lots of different things. So I joined the athletics team. I was obviously vice president of the ACS. I was doing lots of stuff at home as well in terms of like mentoring different students. And it's interesting because... I think for a lot of people, we they just take the curriculum as a given, right? So going to university, this is prescribed and this is what you learn. Um, but in third year, it made me realise how disconnected I was from what I was studying and how that made a massive difference on my you know, experience at university and why I felt first year and second year, would, I just didn't enjoy it at all because I was almost dragging myself through my degree I think that made a massive difference. But in terms of positive, genuinely, my whole third year, I had, su I had such a positive year. Great. And so the first and second year, was it because of the lack of diversity in curriculum from those courses? Yeah, I would say massively. I mean, throughout my whole degree, I wasn't taught by anyone, not even a person of colour, no one black. Mm. I didn't have that representation. Um, and it was also compulsory to study um, British history and European history, um, which is something that I'd studied throughout my whole um, secondary school experience as well. Mm -hmm. So I thought, right, I'm going to university. Of course, it's expanding on things that we already know, which makes sense. But I really do think it would be an, a chance to write. I really want to look into Ghana, for example, where I'm from and all of these different areas or things that we just didn't look at at school. And it just made me question, like, why we see these, like, why is this seen as the prescribed and this is the foundation that everybody needs to know? Um, but also how it was very disconnected from the rest of the world as well. There was one paper that was called World History on one, one paper, paper. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> which was just the rest of the world in this one paper so yeah. even though everything was so interconnected it just made me think a lot but definitely um yeah lack of diversity in the curriculum right. and so obviously a lot of these things can have an impact on your mental health not mm. feeling like you belong you're not part of the or see yourself part of the curriculum and you do write a, cha a whole chapter on mental health um particularly for, for black women yeah. in universities. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, of course. Um, so I think for me, it took me um, to get out of the university environment to really realise how bad my mental health was. And so the way I approach that chapter is very much um, looking at it from a broad view in terms of mental health in general and how does that affect black women in this country anyway. 
and then going into an area that hasn't been that well looked at and that well researched so specifically black women within university what is that you know what does that look like um and how do they how do they deal with it as well so in terms of my own experience um i i don't know i almost imagined the way i would you know address my mental health and the way i would recognize that i wasn't particularly well would be very noticeable so it would be right I know I will feel like this and I know I will do this. And I think what was interesting with the university environment was it's so characterised by unhealthy working patterns. So, for example, our library was 24 hours um, and people would, you know, when you're waking up, you would see people leaving the library and, you know, pushing yourself to work really hard and feeling like you needed to get this grade, otherwise your whole world would collapse. I think because of the university was very characterised by that, my in my mind, I just thought everyone's going through the same thing, like just, just suck it up. Mm-hmm. And actually, in terms of actually seeking help, again, in my mind, it was, well, somebody out there is definitely struggling a lot more than you are. You're fine, you don't need help, like let it go to that person. I think that very much characterises, you know, the... The experience, but also reaction to most black women as well. You you never put yourself first, which I think we try to address in the book, which is such a sad reality that you're always looking out for every single other person first and you forget to prioritise yourself. And that was, when we interviewed everybody, that was, you know, the, the trend. It was the trend. Um, but in particular, we spoke to one girl called Misha, who... Um, did some really detailed research into uh, whether students, well, BME students would like a BME counsellor. And and a lot of them came back and said when they had gone to seek help and they went to sessions, they found that they spent over half of their sessions having to explain themselves and explain why they thought an incident was racist or explain how their mental health is not apolitical. It's not... I'm just, you know, feeling a bit sad when actually it's linked to things that are deeply ingrained in society and are very, very, very political. So in the end, Cambridge ended up getting, you know, a BME counsellor, which has made a massive difference. So I think just kind of looking into it within the university environment, how that will make a big difference to, to black women. Yeah, and like you say, thinking about the structural yeah. issues, library being open 24 hours, no BME counselor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so how have you, uh, what have you done to manage your own mental health during that time? Yeah, I think for me, it was, and like I said, it took me until I left that environment. Mm-hmm. It was when I was, so after second year in that summer, I think I just came home rested which I think was very important um I just took a rest but then also kind of sat down and thought well why what is it that's making me so anxious and what is making me really really you know upset and unwell Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of it again was to do with my work and demands and you know feeling like I was letting people down but also at the same time I felt like I had to prove myself so again I know it sounds, it's, it's easier said, but again, it was a lot of, you know, sitting down and being like, right, prioritise yourself 
and understand that you know you re you're you're you can't you yeah you can't do everything i think that was really important for me but also i have i've got a really you know strong and supportive family network as well so being able to talk to them about it was was it helped massively and i think for them I'd been in this bubble and it was almost like a pressure cooker for eight weeks and then I'd come home and I'm like, I'm so stressed about this essay. I'm like, it's an essay. Come on. <laughs> You're fine. Like, if you don't do the essay, nothing will happen with you. It happened to you and I think it was that. It was understanding that I, if I couldn't do all the reading one week, it was fine and rearranging with my supervisors and speaking to my tutors and just being a lot more transparent about the fact that I wasn't coping, um, definitely, definitely helped a lot. It's great to hear that you had that family network and yeah. that support to talk to, to them about um, these issues. Because there is, as you were talking about the book, mm. some stigma around talking about mental health and yeah. sharing that with others. And how have you felt now sharing your stories with the world, basically? And yeah. how have your family and friends felt about the book? And I think I was quite conscious in that when you write a book, I thought, wow, this is out there forever. Like, I have to be careful about what I say and, you know, I don't want to come across as this and that. And I think that is very much the stigma, isn't it? That I'll be honest, in terms of kind of understanding mental health, I think we have, well, relatively a grasp on, in terms of like anxiety and depression, but other, you know, other instances, so like BPD um, and, you know, other mental and mental health issues I just still feel like there's a massive stigma attached to them so in terms of I think for me in writing the book it was understanding that maybe there are other students not just black women but who are going through the exact same thing and me being able to talk about this as cliche as it sounds might be able to help someone I think even if it helps that one person to think okay I'm not the only one that's really important so I think for me it was understanding it's, it's a lot bigger than me and it's not something that I should be ashamed of, essentially, you know? So that's really important as well in terms of breaking down the stigma. So yeah. well, Now you've put yourself out there for the world <laughs> and how have you dealt with media? Um, mm. So I know you and Ori talk <laughs> a lot about managing the media, being careful with the media. Anytime you or others kind of put race out there, yeah. racism out there, that there is this vitriol that comes back. Yeah. And how have you managed that? Oh. <laughs> God, that's a whole other conversation. I just, yeah. yeah, I just think sometimes the media can be so relentless. Mm. Um, and it is, I I really do think it's all, I, I think it's awful. It's really mm. bad. Um, and again, there's the argument that, well, you've written a book and you've put yourself out there. Mm. But for Oro, for example, she's in Nigeria. She has a job. I'm full-time at, you know, university again. And I'll still be getting calls from the BBC at, like, like midnight. To And I think what's really interesting is that they... I think it's a larger question of media... So the media in general and institutions, what types of conversations they like to, you know, entertain and, 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 and talk to and things like that and engage with so like I said everything that we've said in the book of course it centers on our experiences so that's all new but in terms of the theory and the statistics that's nothing new if that makes sense and I think it's really important to say that 
there is a very kind of critical conversation that's happening at the same time. And at times I do wish the media would engage with that because these people have been talking about these issues for decades, like absolute decades. And I think it's quite tough for Oro and I to now become the poster girls of everything that's diversity because we're just not that at all. Um, and I know for one, my, personally, like I definitely have tried not to come across as that as well. That's what we're trying to break away from, that as black students, we're not all the same. Mm -hmm. We're all very different. And I can't sit here and be the representative for every single black student because we all have different experiences. Um, but in terms of dealing with the media, yeah, it has been quite tough. But again, rewarding in the same time that people are interested in the topic. And I think after they read Taking Up Space, they then think to themselves, wow, I can't believe I didn't know this in the first place. And it provides a conversation and a context to a news headline or, you know, a short story on BBC that will talk about the Stormzy effect. Actually, this is the context to that in which there are students on the ground who are doing a lot of work. Um, but at the same time, just making it a wholesome picture that we're not just... Yeah, we also go to university and we go out on nights. We, like, have fun. We make friends. We find social circles. And then there's the mental health side and there's activism and there's access. It's a bigger picture rather than being... I think it's very easy to just be painted as a stat. You know, you're the only black student in your year group, so one out of 200, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, it's been quite tough, but it's nice to know that people are engaging with the book. Well, I loved in your book that there is such a wide range of black experiences. Yeah. You know, you, you have these intersectional discussions around class, gender, and LGBTQ plus communities. Mm. And was that an intentional decision right, going into writing the book? Yeah, definitely intentional. I think there, there are certain experiences that Ore and I can't speak about. And I think that's why it was also really important to have contributors in the book. Um, but of course, and I think this is the wider question of I'm not just black and then in another context, a woman. I am a black woman. And, you know, as much as we like to categorise things and, you know, compartmentalise, I can't run away from the fact that I am these two things at every single moment of my life. So I think that was really important for us is that, you know, we are the embodiment of what it means to be intersectional. So... Yeah, it was a no-brainer, really. We, ha we, ha we kind of had to. And how did you select... So in the beginning, there mm. are um, short biographies of the contributors, there are, I think, 14 of them. So yeah. how did you select them to contribute to the book? A lot of them were friends of friends, um, people who had been in, like, positions within their universities mm -hmm. or, like, were involved in some way in, like, maybe their ACS or they did some sort of mentoring... Um, but then we also tried to pick a few students who were, you know, very vocal within their university environment. I felt like that was very important. Um, but then also students who didn't do anything in their university environment. I think we definitely both just wanted to get a sense of what it's like to, you know, just be a student and want to maybe just get your head down and leave. And it's not a case of feeling like you have to get involved in every single society. I think we were quite interested to see their perspective. But even still, and they were all relatively different, there was almost this kind of golden thread running throughout all of our experiences in that 
everybody had felt this way at a a particular time or, um, yeah, this is how they dealt with this. And that was interesting that we all went to different universities, but we had the same experience in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what do you hope to get out of this book in terms of impact? Yeah. Um, I think for me, in terms of impact... I hope it creates a sense of urgency. Um, I'd like to think that the information and the data is there and it's now a a case of where it's just on the agenda and there's no, you know, formalities in terms of how this is, how are we going to solve this problem? And I think a lot of that does take a very critical and in-depth look into the university as an institution so like we said like its structures its foundations and you have to have people willing to sit down to do that it's not something that can be brushed aside so yeah I think a sense of urgency but also education in the sense that again like I've said many times we're not the first and this fits in a wider lineage of a lot of theory a lot of conversations and you know student activists who are again on the ground physically making the change and often are there pushing the universities to to do something so hopefully this provides a you know a context to that that kind of movement and how people can then go out there and read a lot more mm-hmm. about about all of the movements with it across the country and in the book Ore struggles a bit with the term activist yes um, and how do you see yourself as an activist yeah. and how does that term fit with you yeah so I actually predicted you would ask me this yeah, question. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, no, I don't see myself as an activist. And I say that because I definitely don't use that term lightly. And especially when you've been behind the scenes and you've seen, like, an active, being an activist isn't just, you know, having the word activist in your Twitter bio <laughs> and, like, maybe going to a few protests. Like, I've seen the very detailed in-depth work and it's emotionally and physically tiring and I look at that and that that is how I see activism um and yeah in terms of me like I said you know writing a book yes it's about my experiences and we're talking about you know big institutions and I think for a lot of people it's like wow you're so brave well done like you're taking on massive institutions I definitely don't see it as that I think, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't brand myself as an activist. Yeah, even with all that you've done. Yeah. Well. <laughs> well, so you were saying it can be exhausting, and it is exhausting. Exactly. How can everyone else be a good ally? It's a really good question. Um, I think support, mm-hmm. and also by support I mean, you know, just being aware of situations and you know your surroundings and maybe how people will be feeling around you again it's very easy when you are branded and deemed as the norm it's very easy not to think about a lot of things right and I think for me especially in my first year I was really resentful of that I just thought people who had had all of this privilege and you know went to the best schools black and white alike so you know black students who went to the best schools as well I had this resentment that was like, you don't know what I've been through. Like, you don't, you don't know anything. <laughs> that sort of resentment. But I think it was, you know, just kind of learning a way around that. 
and in terms of how it can be a bit more collaborative. I won't say wholly collaborative, but a bit more collaborative. Um, so I say support. Um, also, again, educating yourself as well, as best as you can. Um, and I definitely say the most important is not expecting a lot from your, you know, I'll say black because I can only speak for, you know, black people. Not expecting your black friends to, to tell you about, you know, why you shouldn't touch their hair, for example, why something is racist and expecting them to have to explain themselves. Because um, that can be quite taxing. And I think a lot of times I think that's been the main areas why I just sometimes just shut down. Because if it's something that you have, then that's your reality and you live it every single day. I think sometimes when you feel like you have to explain yourself, it can be quite tough. So just not being too hard on them when they might just just turn off and and yeah, shut off. Well, it shouldn't always be your burden to educate everybody, exactly. right? Yeah. Exactly. And so allies having to put in work themselves. Yeah. As well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Black Girls Presents. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at @blackgirlsoxford. Check out our YouTube page at, at @blackgirlsbook and see what exciting events we have coming up in the bookshop on our Eventbrite page.